Well, this morning we come to Isaiah chapter 60. Um, it is a glorious text. Uh, it speaks of the, the city, the new Jerusalem uh, that God is building. Um, and because it is such a glorious text, we're going to read the whole chapter. So we only have two texts we're going to read this morning. We'll read Isaiah 60, uh, the whole chapter together. John will come and read that for us. And then after that, Carl will come up and read uh, Philippians 3, uh, verse 20. Um, like many of the prophetic texts, uh, Isaiah 60 can be a little hard to understand, in particular the pronouns. Uh, and in reading the prophets, the pronouns are always the, the hardest things to understand. You know, who is you? Who is they? Who is he? Who is she? Uh, a lot of times the prophets just leave that mysterious and you don't know who they're talking about. So in order to help you out a little bit, as we read through Isaiah 60, uh, you will often hear a your or a she um, I, almost all of those yours or she's here in Isaiah 60 are referring to Zion or to the new Jerusalem, to this heavenly city uh, that God is building. And so as John comes and, and reads that for us, uh, you can just kind of try to translate that in your mind when you're reading those, uh, those pronouns that these are all referring to the, to the heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem. Uh, so again, we'll read Isaiah 60, hear the description of the city that God is building, and then Philippians 3.20 reminds us that even we here today are citizens of that city. So John, come on up and we can read Isaiah 60 together. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exalt because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, and young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my, peop- my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud, and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. From the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. 
The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. Philippians 3.20 But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Isaiah 60 presents a glorious vision, does it not, of this beautiful city that God is building. Now, without vision, no one can get anywhere, right? To know where to get somewhere, you first have to know where you want to go. If you don't have any destination, you can never possibly get there. If you like to read business books from time to time, like I do, I'm sure you found the message of many such books is that you must have a vision. Uh, One of my favorite authors really likes to use the analogy of uh, JFK uh, getting the United States to go to the moon as being a great example of vision, right? Nobody at that time was really thinking much of the possibility of landing someone on the moon, but he had this vision that the United States could get there. And so he cast this glorious vision of the United States landing a man on the moon. And of course, within just a few years' time, it actually happened. And books that are less oriented toward business and more oriented toward just helping individuals get out of ruts, one practice that's very commonly affirmed is the practice of having a vision board where you create something that you see every day. Maybe it's a bulletin board, maybe it's a binder something that you always have with you, and inside your vision board, you put pictures of what you ultimately want to achieve. So maybe it's a a sculpted body, or maybe it's a lovely home in the country with horses around, or maybe it's speaking to a huge crowd of people. Whatever it is, uh, they advocate for this idea of finding some picture and putting it in your vision board and then looking at it every day. It's actually not bad advice, even if it's a little bit simplistic, because you really can't get somewhere unless you know where you're going. You do have to have a vision if you want to be able to get there. Well, you can consider Isaiah 60 to be like God's vision board or the vision of what God wants to accomplish on the earth. In Isaiah 60, we have this description of the future that God is going to bring about. Isaiah 60 is this description where the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem, and and even the whole earth, what is taking place and where God is going. 
Isaiah 60 is the hope of all mankind. And so my prayer for us this morning is as we look at Isaiah 60, as we see this vision that God has for us, that first it will give us hope. It will make us excited to see where God is going, where he is taking us and where he is taking others. And then when we have hope and we see where God is taking us, that it will also make us very eager to take part, to jump in and contribute and to be part of what God is doing on the earth here and now. And so that's my prayer for the effect of the message this morning. So to flesh out this text, I want to take it in two main steps. First, I want us to see what the goal is that God has for us. Just what is this vision of Isaiah 60, this city that is described here? And then second, I want us to see something of how God is going to achieve that goal. So that's the outline for our message this morning. Number one, what is this goal? What is described in Isaiah 60? And then secondly, how will that goal be achieved? But first, let me just slip in one other thing before I begin to describe that goal. And that is, I just want to connect Isaiah 60 here, where we are this morning, to what we've looked at for the previous few weeks as we were in Isaiah 56 to 59. When we were in Isaiah 56 to 59, we did see a great promise of salvation, did we not? We saw in the first place that even though man is incredibly sinful, that nevertheless God would send a great Savior and that this called for a response among those who wanted to belong to God. Well, in Isaiah 60, Isaiah is moving to the next step beyond this, and he is moving to describe the result or the outcome of this great salvation that he is bringing. So the Savior that God sent, and then the response that his chosen ones gave to God, what are they going to accomplish? What is going to come about because of the work of this Redeemer and the work of his people? Well, that's what Isaiah 60 is all about. It's about what is going to happen. What is God going to accomplish? And we could even connect the message this week to the message last week, where we heard about the love that God the Father has for God the Son. And we could say that this passage answers the question, what is God the Father doing out of his love for God the Son? This is the grand purpose that God has. He is all about glorifying his Son, Jesus Christ. And the main way that God the Father wants to glorify God the Son is through the construction of this city that we read about in Isaiah chapter 60. And so we are seeing in Isaiah 60 the ultimate purpose of God for how he wants to glorify his son, the ultimate purpose of God for how he wants to bring about the redemption of the earth. And so Isaiah 60 truly is a glorious chapter. In fact, we'll even see at the end of Isaiah 60 that John in the book of Revelation, when he's describing the new heavens and the new earth, he goes back to this chapter of Isaiah to describe what God is doing in that age that is to come. Okay, so now to the meat of the message. What is God's goal in redemption? We could even add to this question and say, what is his goal in all of creation? What, when he first designed the earth and when he first constructed this physical world that we live in, what was the objective that he had in mind? Where did he want to take this created order? Where has he been striving to take all of human history as he works all of human history according to his purposes? The place that he wants to take all of creation and all of the earth is what we see in Isaiah 60. 
The answer that we learn to this question really is remarkable, and that is that what God ultimately wants to do is he wants to build a city. Yes, just a city. We see this at the end of verse 14 in Isaiah 60. It says, They shall call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is what God is up to in all of redemptive history. What he's up to on earth today is building his own city, building the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, of course, as in all of prophetic literature, we do have to be careful not to take this too literally. So even though I am sure that the eternal state will have many city-like features, I'm also very sure that it will not be just like the cities that we know today, right? So the city that God is building is not just going to be like Pittsburgh, but a little bit better, right? It's not even going to be like New York City or Rome or Beijing. It, it will have features of all of those cities, but will be so far better than all of those cities. It will be much more magnificent than any city that we know today. Nevertheless, it is still important for us to realize that even if it's not going to be exactly the same as the cities that are on earth today, we must realize that out of all the analogies that God could have chosen for what he is building, for what he is doing, Out of all the metaphors available to God, he nevertheless chose this metaphor of a city. So why? What is so special about the metaphor of a city? And what exactly are we to understand by this idea of God building a city? Well, there's three primary features that I want to draw out of Isaiah 60 for what is so special about a city, for the features of a city that we do see on earth today that I believe are going to carry over in the age to come, the things that are true now that will be true for all eternity. So what is so special about a city? The first thing that we see about a city is that a city is corporate. That is, it has lots of people. And so if God is building a city, that means that he is not just building isolated individuals to be the best isolated individuals that they can be. And so if you were gathered here in this church this morning, there really are kind of fundamentally two different ways you could think about your spiritual life and even about our church gathering here. One way you could think of it is you could think that, you know what, God really wants to change me. God really wants to work upon me. And when I come to church, mainly what I'm doing is I'm trying to get lessons for me, for my own spiritual life, so that I can become a better Christian, a more obedient follower of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not entirely wrong. Obviously, we do want to be more obedient to Jesus. We do want to become better individual followers of Jesus Christ. But one thing that we see in Isaiah 60 is that if God is building a city, that is, if he is building this whole crowd of people to come together, then the ultimate aim of God in redemptive history is not ultimately just that you as an individual be a good person or this other person over here be a better person. Rather, his goal is to build a whole crowd of people, a corporate body of people into one entity, into a city. We see this probably most clearly in verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 60. It says, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hips. And so what Isaiah is calling us to realize is he's calling us to realize that God really is calling people to himself from all across the earth. So God's project is not just in your own individual heart. 
God's project is to call a whole mass of humanity to himself. And this is what he calls the city. And so even if you don't consider yourself to have an especially social nature, you know, to be an extrovert, to really like being around people, right? I know that's not my nature. I I still know that I must nevertheless understand that part of God's grand design for all of human history and even for my life is to be in this huge crowd of people, to be in this gathering of people. That actually is good for us. Even if maybe in our personalities we don't think we really love that or we're bent that way, Nevertheless, God wants to build this corporate body of people. One of the great things about cities, one of the things that I most love about cities, is how they do seem to have this energy about them. When you drive to downtown Pittsburgh and maybe you're weaving through the tall buildings down there, maybe you go to Point State Park, or probably the the city where I've experienced this most in New York City, when you're in New York City and you're walking around Central Park or Times Square or Battery Park, you just kind of feel this energy about the city. And I think that's because when you look around, you see just crowds of people everywhere. And you don't even just see one type of people. You see tall people and short people and large people and thin people and dark people and light people. And you see all these different kinds of people. And you realize when you're in these huge crowds of people that you're not alone, that, that you really are part of something bigger. That you could be in New York City and you just kind of realize that, you know what, I could go somewhere else. I could not be in New York City anymore. And this city would carry on fine without me. Because New York City is not about me. It's about everyone that's here. And again, this is the image that's given to us in Isaiah chapter 60. God is not building a city that primarily consists of one person being great in any way or one person standing out in any way. No, he is calling people from all over the earth to himself. In fact, one of the huge emphases of chapter 60 is that the multitude that is gathering is a diverse multitude. So to the Jewish readers of Isaiah especially, the most shocking thing that they would find in Isaiah 60, and again, probably the greatest point of emphasis in Isaiah 60, is that the crowd that is gathering is not the crowd of God's people. It's not a crowd of Israelites. It's not a crowd of Jews. No, it's a crowd of people from all over the world, and they are all coming to the city of God. Again, in verse 3, we read, nations shall come to your light. Now, when you read nations, here in particular, nations that are not Israelites. So these are Gentile nations. And kings to the brightness of your rising. When you see kings in the plural, you know it's not just talking about Israel, because Israel only had one king. And so this is talking about the kings of other nations coming to the Lord. Verse 5, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. For the Israelites, when they talked about the sea, they were talking about nations far away because the Israelites, for the most part, were not a seafaring people. And so if people are coming to Zion from the sea, that means it's other nations that are coming from the sea. In verses 6 and 7, we see Midian, Ephah, Sheba, Kedar, Nebaioth, all these nations listed as coming to the Lord. In verse 9, it says, the coastlands, the ships of Tarshish are coming. In 60 verse 10, we see in particular that foreigners shall build up your walls. Foreigners shall come and build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. And so all over this passage, we see a call that all of the nations from all over the earth are going to be coming to this new city that God is building. And so this is the first part of this goal that God is achieving, is that he is building a corporate place, a place for all peoples from all over the earth to become part of this one city. 
The second feature of the city that I think we're supposed to understand that, again, is true of cities today that God is also caring for in the age to come is that a city is interlocking. A city is interlocking. For a, so for a city to function, you need many different kinds of people with many different areas of expertise. You need someone good with money to make sure that money goes to the places where it's supposed to go and to people who are using it wisely. You need someone who's good with construction to build roads and to build walls. You need someone good with government to establish laws. And you need many other things to establish a good city. One of the fascinating pieces of literature to read this in dialogue with is uh, is Plato's Republic. It's one of the most famous works of philosophy of all time. And in Plato's Republic, basically what he's asking is what is needed to build the perfect city. And so Plato himself comes up with all these different roles, all these different things that people need to do if you're going to have the perfect city. Well, again, here in Isaiah chapter 60, one thing that we find as a major theme is a diversity of people that is essential to this city of God. Again, we read that riches are going to come from the sea and from the flocks, and so you need fishermen and you need herdsmen. That's what we see in the second half of verse 5. And in then verse 6, we read that there's going to be camels that come. And then in verse 6, we also see that we need people that work with metal and we need perfumers because it says that gold and frankincense are going to come. In verse 10, we see that we're going to need builders. It says that foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. So we also need rulers. We need those kings. In verse 13, we see that we need lumberjacks and we need carpenters. It says, The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And then in verse 17, we see that we need metal workers to build God's city. It says, Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. And so this city is going to be a beautiful city with very diverse kinds of beauty. And the main thrust of speaking of all these different things is, I believe, to say that God's glory is so great and so multifaceted that no one of us could possibly hope to reveal the full glory of God in our own private lives. No, it needs a whole abundance of people all working with different talents, different abilities, working together if we are going to show forth God's beauty. Beloved, God wants to use your talent to build his kingdom. He wants to use whatever gifts, skills, abilities he has given you in his own service to build this city that he has planned. I believe this is one of the major thrusts behind that great commandment to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. He's saying that whatever faculties God has given to you, and God has given each one of us unique faculties. No two of us here this morning are the same. Whatever unique faculties he has given to you, God wants to use those faculties in service to build his city, to build his kingdom. Now, one very concrete example of this that the Scripture gives is in 1 Corinthians 12, where it's talking about the church in particular. And the way that it talks about the church as as one body, or you could say one city, with many different members. And so 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so what this is saying is it's saying that each one of us needs to take stock of how God created us, who he created us to be, and then each one of us needs to find the way to leverage how God created us in order to build his kingdom. My hope is that you and your spiritual life will not look exactly like mine or exactly like anybody else's because you are striving to love God with all that you are, even as I am striving to love God with all that I am. If we are going to build this city that God has prepared, then we must each use the gifts that God has given to each one of us. And yes, this applies within the church, but I believe that it applies outside the church as well, in your workplace, in the manner in which you work. You can go about building God's kingdom. Maybe God will lead you to start a nonprofit, and in a nonprofit, you can build God's kingdom. And so, in many different ways, I hope that you will use whatever gifts and talents and knowledge God has given you to the best of your abilities to build the city that God is building. The third thing that is clear about cities that I think is also clear here in Isaiah chapter 60 is that cities are material. Cities are material, that is, they are physical things. Now, one popular misconception of heaven in Christian circles is that heaven is like everyone sitting on a cloud playing a harp. I know that that's probably, you know, the clearest picture that I got of heaven when I was a kid growing up in the church. And yet, when we read Isaiah 60, we get something very far removed from people up on a cloud playing a harp in some disembodied existence. No, the city of Isaiah 60 is a very concrete city. It is a very real place. Again, even the verses I just read, it talked about walls, it talked about metal, it talked about kings, it talked about all of these material, physical things. You cannot have a city if you do not have structures. And so it is true that the current world is passing away. 1 Peter talks about how the current age will end with everything being burned up with fire. And yet, it is nevertheless true that God does not intend for the material world to vanish altogether. That even after this phase of God's material creation passes away, there is a new phase coming that is no less material, that is no less real than the age in which we live right now. And so again, all of these skills that we are building right now having to do with the material world, all of the knowledge that we are gaining about the material world, all of that knowledge, all of those skills are not passing away as if the material world will no longer be important, it will no longer be needed. No, everything that we are doing today is a preparation for the age to come. And so part of the exhortation I have for you from this is to not give into the secular sacred split, by which I mean that I know it's easy for some as Christians to think that those who are engaged in more spiritual work, you know, like myself, a pastor, are somehow doing the work that is really important, whereas the people that have more of your average nine-to-five job, that you're doing something that's a little bit less important or not as critical as the spiritual work that is going on. But no, as we read Isaiah 60, we see that every kind of skill is needed. Even the very material skills that we are developing today are needed. 
God doesn't say that the spiritual, that the sacred things are much better than the physical or earthly things. No, all things can be done to the glory of God. And God wants all things to be a part of building his kingdom, of building his city. And so whatever your profession may be, know that there are some aspects of your profession that even though it may not be your company that is going to cross over to the age to come, nevertheless, some of those skills that you are using today will cross over to the age to come. And when Scripture commands us to work as for God and not for men, this is part of what Scripture is talking about, is that understand that your labor today is not merely labor for a paycheck, It's not merely labor so that you can have clothes on your back and food in your stomach. No, the labor that you are doing today is preparing you for this eternal weight of glory, for this city that God is building, where all the gifts and talents that he gives you now are going to be used for the building up of the city of God. And so this is what God is doing now. This is the city that he is establishing. He is establishing a place where there is abundance of people, an abundance of diverse people. And all of these diverse people are all working with their own gifts. They're all working with their own abilities to build something that actually has material significance and beauty. I think these are the three main features that Isaiah 60 has to tell us about the city of God. So this is the goal that God has. This is where all of history is headed, is this sort of place. But then second, how does God want to get there? How does God want to get there? Well, again, a popular misconception that I think many Christians have is that this this city that God is building is only a future city. Meaning that today, mostly what Christians and the church is supposed to do is today we're just kind of supposed to hang on to faith. We're just kind of supposed to suffer for Jesus Christ. And then in the age to come, well, that's when the city of God will come down from heaven. And that's when the city of God will really be built. So today is not a day of city building. Today is not a day of building the kingdom of God. That's for the age to come. Today we just hold on to faith. But I think that would be a vast misunderstanding of how the scripture portrays the development of the city of God. It is very true that the city in perfect form will only come in the age to come. We, in our own strength, cannot build the city of God. It must be built by Jesus Christ himself, and it must come down from heaven above. But nevertheless, Scripture clearly teaches that there are ways that we today can labor to build this city that God is building. Now, the main way that I want us to see this is I want us to see concrete fulfillments of this city in Scripture itself of things that have already happened, which signify to us that the city is already being built. The foundation has already been laid And we are simply to build on top of it as we continue to build God's city. But first, I want us to see the progression of Isaiah chapter 60 itself. So in Isaiah 60, we have verses 1 to 3, which offer something of an overview of the whole chapter. It says that, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So that's very general, right? Very vague. It's like we see that there's darkness, and then we see that light is coming. 
But what is that supposed to look like? How is that actually going to happen? Well, then we get verses 4 to 18 that are, again, this very concrete description of the city that is being built. All the different skills that God is going to use, all the different materials that God is going to use, all the different people that God is going to bring together. Again, this very concrete vision of what the city of God is going to look like. And in the close of the chapter, verses 19 to 22, we see a perfected view of what the city is going to look like. And so in Isaiah 60, verse 19, it says, The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. And so we see in this closing to the chapter that this is most definitely talking about a future day when, again, the sun will be no more, the moon will be no more, when God will be in our midst. And so even in Isaiah 60, we see this progression from things that are concrete and present to things that are future and yet to come. Now, how do we see the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60 throughout the scriptures? Well, obviously, I I won't have time to talk about every last occurrence of how Isaiah 60 is coming to fulfillment, but I want to show you a few highlights so that you can see that Isaiah 60 is not just for some future day, but it is for today. Now, the very first fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 60, I think we see very soon after the birth of Jesus. Recall how in Isaiah 60, we've seen that kings shall come to the city. And guess what? Two of the things that the kings are supposed to bring are gold and frankincense. Well, what do we read about in Matthew chapter 2? It's talking about three magi, three kings from nations who were far away. And they saw the brightness of a star arise, just like we read of at the beginning of Isaiah 60. The brightness shall arise. And so they travel to follow this star. And when they find the young child who this star points to, they bring him gifts of gold and frankincense. Matthew 2, 10 to 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. And so we see from the birth of Jesus Christ, the foundation of the city is being laid. The city has begun, and kings are beginning to stream to Zion with their treasure and with their gifts. The next highlight I want us to see is the fulfillment that we get at Pentecost. Again, Isaiah 60 tells us about many different nations that are going to come to Zion, they're going to come to God. And this is exactly what we see fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 5, says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Zion, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Again, that word nation is a word that shows up in Isaiah 60. And it says, And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya beyond to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. And Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And so we see the day of Pentecost itself, that first day when the gospel was proclaimed, we see people from every nation gathering around the temple, coming to the city of God, coming to bow the knee to King Jesus. And so that's the next step of fulfillment that we see of Isaiah chapter 60. Later on in the New Testament, we see that the gospel has gone out, not just from Jerusalem, but has gone out throughout the known world. And so we see in Colossians 1 verse 6, it says that the gospel has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And so the gospel is going out through the whole earth, And the nations, peoples around the whole earth are responding to the gospel. The city of God is being built. Now for the fifth phase, we have to go a bit beyond uh, just the confines in the New Testament. But when we look at the course of human history, we see the truth of Isaiah 60. That as we look at the last 2,000 years from the closing of the scriptures to the present day, the gospel has progressively gone forth in nation after nation and people all over the earth have responded to Jesus Christ, have come in to this heavenly Zion. We see it first in how the gospel itself took over the Roman Empire, which is just amazing to think of. This Roman Empire that for so long persecuted Christians, killed Christians, under the reign of Constantine, actually came to bow the knee to King Jesus. Later, from this one empire of Rome, the gospel went forth. It went into Europe, and many European kings and tribal leaders bowed the knee to King Jesus. And then progressively from there, the gospel has spread all over the earth. In fact, the only significant place on the earth where the gospel has not yet spread is called the 1040 window. And the 1040 window just refers to an area of the earth that's about 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator across Asia and the Middle East and North Africa. And it's only this part of the world where the gospel has really not yet penetrated. But that means that 80% of the earth has heard about Jesus Christ, that the name of Jesus has gone forth, and people from every tribe and tongue have responded, have become part of this great city of God. The next thing we see is how the foreigners, how we Gentiles, have been brought into the city And how after we are brought into the city, then the Jewish people themselves will turn to the Messiah. We see this in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, it talks about how the Jewish people in the time of Paul are not receiving Jesus as their king. And so this makes some people wonder, well, have have the promises of God fallen? Or in the context of Isaiah 60, you could say they're wondering, well, is God really going to build this city? Does God have the power to save his own people? But the Apostle Paul says this is all part of God's plan. 
God plans for his own people to not turn to him now so that the gospel can go to the Gentiles, so that all the nations can hear. And then after all the nations hear, Romans 11, verse 11, it says, through their trespass, that is, through the disbelief of the Jewish people, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. And then it says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So then the Jews are going to come back into the kingdom of God. So then God's city will include people from all nations on the earth and will also include people from among God's people, the Jewish people. And then after this happens, we get to the final phase of the building of God's city. And this is the phase that we see in Revelation chapter 21. And in Revelation 21, what we read there precisely mirrors these words of Isaiah 60. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Beloved, God has this glorious plan that stretches from the very birth of Jesus Christ to the very end of history itself for the building of his city. The building of the city again began with the birth of Jesus Christ and then it carried on at Pentecost. It carried on to the spread of the disciples across the earth. It carries on in our own day as the gospel continues to go forth. And one day the work will be completed when the city of God comes down from heaven and a new heavens and a new earth. And so, beloved, if this is true, then it means we ought to have great hope, does it not? That God truly is building the city from all nations of the earth using all types of different skills and ability and that he wants to build a beautiful place for us all to live in together. And so, beloved, if we have this kind of hope, what better thing could there be to labor for? What better thing could there be to invest our lives in than the building of this kingdom, knowing that whatever efforts we pour into the building of this kingdom, those efforts will never pass away, will never be wasted, because this city is not destroyed when Jesus returns. Rather, this city is all the more firmly established. And so, beloved, we can rejoice that we ourselves get to be included in this beautiful city that God is building, and we can pray that God would make us laborers in this city that will last for all eternity. And we can pray that God would give us wisdom to know how we can use how God has created us to serve him with all of our might and with all of our strength to construct this glorious future that God is building. We can see, even as we look around Pittsburgh today, that there are many who are suffering, there are many who are lost, that we can bring relief to and do some small work of building the city of God here in Pittsburgh today. Again, we see 
in the 1040 window across the oceans, that there's still labor there that needs to be done to build the city of God? Beloved, there's not a shortage of jobs available. Jesus said that the fields are white for the harvest, and what we need to do is to pray for laborers to go out into the harvest. We need laborers to build the city of God. And so would you join me now as we pray for these sort of laborers, pray that we ourselves here would be laborers in the city of God, and pray that God would raise up yet more laborers, that we could build his kingdom, that we could build his city on earth now and see its beauty in the age to come. So we'll, beginning by, we'll begin by praying just in reflection upon the message, and then I'll transfer us to praying for the needs of the world around us. So would you join me in prayer now? Heavenly Father, we indeed rejoice in this beautiful city that you are building. Lord, a, a city with beauty beyond what we can now imagine. And God, I pray that you would strengthen us to be wholehearted laborers in the construction of that city. Would you show us, God, I pray, how you desire to use us? Would you show us where we are needed? And would you build your city here in Pittsburgh today, Lord, increasing the justice and the peace of our city, increasing the knowledge of you in our city? But would you also build the city to the very ends of the earth? And so, Lord, would you receive our prayers now toward that end.